This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Matthew 20, looking this morning at verses 29 through 34. Hear the word of God. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning as we study your word for the light of your Holy Spirit to teach us and to instruct us, to open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. Since he left Galilee in the north on his way into Judah in the south, specifically toward Jerusalem, uh, quite a few things have happened that began back in chapter 19, verse 1. And as Jesus made his way along, we've had the question about uh, marriage and divorce. Uh, he was uh, uh, questioned by the rich young ruler, uh, the, the children Jesus invited to come to him, the request of the Zebedees to sit at his right hand and his left, and Probably other things as well that are not recorded in the scriptures, but a lot has been going on. Well, Matthew now records one last event in this passage that's before us, a final miracle that Jesus performed before he entered the city of Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem and those areas around it uh, in its, all its Passover glory uh, to keep his date with the cross. So we have one last view of Jesus before he enters that crucible uh, for that last week of his life leading up to Calvary. Before we look at the miracle itself and what happened here, I want us to ask and answer a couple of questions that arise if you read this passage, and especially if you compare it with its counterparts in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel. Now, for some of you, this may be of no concern at all. Others of you may have pondered this or maybe have friends who have raised this. I remember back in college at a state university, I was in a philosophy class, and uh, the professor sometimes taught philosophy, but he seemed much more interested in making photocopies of what he perceived to be discrepancies in the Bible and uh, confronting us with these things and uh, challenging the reliability of the Scriptures. And this would be the kind of thing that he would come up with. Because as you look at these, a couple of questions come up. Uh, 
especially compared with the parables. Well, first of all, was Jesus leaving Jericho? As Matthew says here, they went out of Jericho. Also, Mark indicates they were leaving Jericho. Or was he entering Jericho, as Luke seems to say? Luke says he went into Jericho as he was going into Jericho. Well, which is it? Was he leaving or was he just going into the city when he encountered these blind men? Well, several answers have been proposed to that. Probably, uh, I think the most accurate answer, the right answer, is that they were, in fact, two Jerichos. Now, the skeptic will say, oh, come on. But no, in fact, they really were. There was the old city of Jericho that we know about from our Old Testament history, but there was also a newer settlement that had arisen before the time of Jesus, and King Herod uh, the Great had actually expanded and developed so that it had become a considerable city in its own right, uh, a short distance from the old Jericho. And so it could quite be possible that, that the gospel writers are describing Jesus as he is making his way out of the old Jericho and drawing near to the new Jericho. Now, I don't know if it's significant or not. I do think it's interesting that both Matthew and Mark, Jews, seem to refer to Jesus leaving Jericho, and maybe they're thinking the old Jericho that they knew of Israel in their, their Israelite history. Whereas Luke refers to Jesus entering Jerusalem or entering Jericho, uh, which Luke may well have in mind the new city, which maybe resonated more with Luke as a Gentile, this more recent Jericho, whereas that ancient one in its past uh, with Israel was really not as well known or as, as vivid. I don't know if there's much to that or not. But it's just interesting that Luke, the Gentile, uh, describes him entering Jericho, perhaps entering the environs of the new one. So uh, was Jesus leaving or entering? I think the answer is both, depending on which Jericho you have in mind. Another question that comes up is, what, were, were, were there two men here who were healed or was there just one? Matthew records two men. Luke records one man and, and Mark records one man and names him. His name was Bartimaeus. Were there two or were there one? Well, if there were two, then obviously there was at least one. But logical niceties aside, uh, Mark and Luke don't say there was only one. But leaving the, the, the logical niceties aside, what are we to make of that? Well, it seems that there were at least two. Matthew describes two. And perhaps Mark and Luke focus on one who may have been the spokesman, who may have been the more prominent of the two. And in fact, if Mark did get his information from Peter, it may be, since they know his name, that, that uh, he was acquainted with this man. And so specifically focuses on this one man. His name was Bartimaeus, uh, whereas, in fact, Matthew says there were actually two, although one of them may have been more prominent in speaking with Jesus than the other. And certainly there's no shortage of blind people who received their sight from Jesus. We read earlier the account of the man who had been born blind in John 9, and even earlier in uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, there's, there's an account where Jesus heals two blind men, and the circumstances are somewhat similar, but there are a lot of things that are not that would certainly, I think, indicate that that was a different occasion. So two, one, uh, Jesus healed lots of blind people. Matthew notes that there were two here, whereas Mark and Luke just seem to focus in on perhaps the one who was more prominent in the interaction. Well, now let's look at the miracle itself. What are we to make of this? This last view of Jesus before he enters into that week of his passion in the city of Jerusalem. Well, there's several things we want to note about Jesus that Matthew portrays once more for us here before he enters 
into the city. First of all, this healing that Matthew records reflects Jesus' priorities. Once more, Matthew is confronting us with Jesus' priorities, and this really stands out, especially in light of what we have just looked at the last uh, couple of weeks in the verses that go before this text. Think what was going on here. Think what Jesus faced. Obviously, Jerusalem and the things that were going to happen to him there were very much on Jesus' mind. It was just uh, back in 17, 18, 19 that Jesus, uh, again, informs his disciples of the things that, was, that were going to happen to him in the city. So he's thinking about these things. They're on his mind. He knows what's coming up. And yet how different is Jesus' attitude from the others? Uh, we see earlier uh, the attitude of others around him, his disciples, Back in uh, chapter 19, verse 13, parents were bringing their children to Jesus. The disciples rebuked the people. Why are you bothering Jesus? Why are you bringing your little children to Jesus? Leave the man alone. Doesn't have time for you. Got things to do. Needs to deal with important people. Keep your children to yourself. Jesus says, no, not at all. Let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them. For such is the kingdom of heaven. We see Jesus... Disciples, at least a couple of them, along with their mother, who are saying, you know, Jesus, we want to ask something from you. We want the places of honor. Could we go ahead and lock in that that seat at your right hand, seat at your left hand when you come into your kingdom? We want to make sure that we get those places of honor for ourselves, secure that, get that locked in. And even here, as Jesus is making his way along, there's a crowd of people, and presumably at this point, many of them also, Uh, are pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover as they're traveling together. And these blind men start crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, over and over, crying out. And the people rebuke them and say, be quiet, be silent. What are you doing? Why are you bothering him? Hush. And yet notice that with all that he had on his mind, in contrast to the crowds, his own disciples, Jesus stops. Stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? That's astonishing to me. That's remarkable. It shows us Jesus' priorities. Jesus first was not concerned with himself. He's just said that back in the verse prior to our text today. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And in stark contrast to his disciples, whose priority was to get for themselves the place of honor, Jesus immediately demonstrates what he just said, that he came not to be served. What was his priority was not his own comfort, it was not his own convenience, but he came to serve. And he goes to these two blind men who like blind people in their day, were reduced to the only vocation they could have, and that was begging. And he walks up to them, stops the whole thing, just goes over to them and says, what do you want me to do? What do you need? That reflects Jesus' priorities. Does that reflect our priorities? Does that reflect our concern for people, to serve people, to do for people, even when it may be inconvenient for us? And we talked about that last time. But it is striking that as soon as Jesus has said that, he has the opportunity to demonstrate what that means. He could have just kept on going. He could have just pretended he didn't hear. He had big things to do. had to save the world. Who could stop for a couple of blind men? And yet Jesus did. 
reflects Jesus' priorities. The passage also shows Jesus' heart. And of course, that's bound up with his priorities. But once again, we have a glimpse beyond the miracle into the heart of Jesus. And these men are crying out, and their cry is pretty pitiful. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. They call for mercy. They're crying out for help. And Jesus goes and says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And verse 34 says, Jesus in pity touched their eyes. Now, I like the ESV very much, but I think that's a little weak. Because the word is, is it's the word that's translated in other places, he felt compassion. And we, we tend to think of pity as, as feeling sorry for them. And it, that is, in a sense, what it means. But the word is much richer than just you feel sorry for somebody. Uh, I've mentioned it before. The Greek word splonknon. Ugly word, beautiful meaning. Literally, it referred to uh, one's inner parts, the viscera. By the way, we use our word viscera, that word as an adjective, a visceral reaction. You know, a gut level reaction. Well, the word literally refers to one's innards. Figuratively, it refers to compassion. We have something similar to it in English when we say, my heart goes out to you. We're not talking about that literal organ pumping away inside our chest that keeps the blood moving, keeps us alive. We're saying, I feel compassion for you. I hurt for you. So even in English, we have something that, that kind of reflects that expression that says, I hurt deep within me for you. I feel for you deep within my being. And that's the sense here. In, in pity, I mean, it's, it's there, but it just seems to say Jesus felt sorry for them. Whereas, in fact, it's talking about a feeling of compassion, a feeling of sorrow for them, of hurting for them and with them that arises from deep within his being as he interacts with these men who cannot see him. And they said, Lord, let our eyes be open. We would that our eyes could be opened. And Jesus, it says, is moved with compassion. That expression occurs nine times in the Gospels. It occurs several times. We've already encountered it in Matthew's Gospel, uh, in Mark chapter or Matthew chapter nine, uh, verse thirty-six. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. It occurs again in Matthew chapter fourteen. Verse 14, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. It occurs again in 15, verse 32, Jesus calls his disciples to him when he sees all these people in need. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me three days now and have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away Hungry, And so here for a fourth time, Jesus is described as feeling compassion on the crowds, whether they're sick or hungry, and here these blind men. Now, I think Jesus is moved with compassion, certainly because of their plight on a personal level, because of what they're experiencing. But even more broadly, because what they were experiencing is the effect of the fall. It's the effect of sin. It's, the, it's, the, it's because this world has been twisted and corrupted from what God made it to be. A beautiful place where everything was good, where there was no blindness. 
And Jesus sees these men who cannot see. I mean, a, a, a sense God intended us to have, and they're deprived of it, whether from birth or because of injury or because of sickness. Then Jesus is moved with compassion for these men, but he's moved with compassion for them, not just individually, but as two people who have been so profoundly negatively affected by the fall, by sin, the condition of sin in this world. You remember John 9 got started with the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, these men are blind because of sin, but probably not their own, but probably sin is the condition of this fallen world. And Jesus feels compassion. His heart is moved as he hears their pleas for help, and he recognizes what the fall has done to these men. Do we feel compassion for people around us? Do we recognize that people around us, even though they may do things that bother us, that offend us, or even that make us angry, are that way because they are caught in the snare of sin? There's their own sins and consequences, certainly, but even bigger than that, the condition of sin, that they are fallen, and they live in a fallen world, and there's nothing they can do about it. Does that move you with compassion? Now, yes, we see people who are sick or people who are hurt, and those are effects of the fall, too. But even people who sin, who sin against us, are caught in sin. They are ensnared by the devil. And we should look at them with compassion, because what they need is the Savior who feels compassion for people in their sin. I think that's similar to what Jesus felt for that rich young ruler. Mark says he looked at him and loved him. Because here was a man who was concerned about his soul and yet was enslaved to his possessions. And Jesus loved this man. He loved a lot of things about him, but he would not compromise his standards. And the man's heart needed to be for Christ and Christ alone. Jesus' priorities are seen here. Jesus' heart and the compassion he felt are seen here. Jesus' power, obviously, is seen here. These men are crying out when, when Jesus is coming. They've heard he's coming. And they cry out to him because they've heard of him by reputation. They know that Jesus has healed other people. Else, why would they cry out? Who can, who can give sight to the blind? Well, they knew of Jesus. They heard of the things that he had done. And they knew that this might be their only opportunity to get help from him. And uh, so, uh, like the importunate widow, the persistent widow, they would not be quieted by the crowd. They would not be silenced by those around them the rebukes and scorn of the crowds around them, but they kept crying out, Jesus, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. And so Jesus comes over to them, and it says, moved with compassion, he touched their eyes. He touched that place where sin had so profoundly affected them, where the fall had taken away their vision. And we read immediately, They recovered their sight. It wasn't a matter of it coming later, but immediately they could see. Now think about that. We don't know what particular physical ailment resulted in their blindness. Maybe it was uh, an injury to their eyes. Maybe it was disease. But whatever it was, Jesus removed that. And not only could their eyes now see, but their brains could process what they were seeing. You know, we think about that. Well, if your eyes see, then suddenly you can just see. But no, it's, it's more complicated than that. 
the brain has to be able to process and interpret what you are seeing, what is coming in. And all of that, Jesus healed immediately. You see, we see Jesus' power here to to restore sight. It's nothing for him who called galaxies into being out of nothing to restore sight. It's, It's absolutely nothing for him to do that. It's like when Jesus forgave the sins of the lame man. And he said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Get up and walk. And he did it. Jesus asked him, which is easier, to say this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? Well, to say get up and walk in some ways is a harder thing to say because that is immediately verifiable. Either the man can walk or he can't. But from Jesus' point of view, that's nothing. But to say your sins are forgiven would require the cross. A much more difficult proposition from Jesus' point of view. But it shows Jesus' power, and it reminds us what we've been seeing in the gospel all along, that the kingdom of heaven has come, it has come in Jesus, and the effects of sin and the fall are being pushed back. Turf formerly held by Satan is being reclaimed by the king, taken back. And we have to be reminded that this was not an isolated incident. It it foretells something much bigger. You know, Romans 8 speaks of the creation itself under the curse, affected by the fall, longs for the day when the sons of God will be revealed, when that curse will be lifted, when the effects of the fall will be rolled back in their entirety. Even creation is waiting for that day of which this is just a foretaste. The healing of these these men's eyes was there to indicate something much bigger. That the kingdom of heaven has come, it is at work in the world, and the day is coming when sin and these miserable effects of sin will be gone and done with and over once and for all in the new heavens and the new earth. It is a small miracle. Two men there near Jericho, but this tells us that the day is coming when all the effects of sin will be gone. It also shows Jesus' identity. It's no accident that twice it's put in here, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, uh, could be translated Sir, probably means more than that, given that these men are calling to Jesus to do for something no human could do for them, to give them sight. Son of David, a messianic term, a term filled with hope, with all that the Old Testament indicated was invested in that term, that the Son of David, uh, that promised future king, would do. The words invested with hope. And certainly the fact that Jesus could just touch their eyes and their sight was restored indicates the nature of Jesus' identity, that this was the Messiah, that this was the Son of David, that this was the Son of God. Let our eyes be opened. The words on these men's lips. But, you know, those should be the words on our lips as well. For the non-Christian. By God's grace, he might, she might cry out, Lord, let my eyes be opened. I remember a little booklet by Francis Schaeffer that was basically just scripture verses designed to lead someone into an understanding of what the Bible teaches about salvation. And Schaeffer has an introduction to that little booklet uh, that very gently, is, in his characteristic manner, is speaking to someone who may not be a Christian. And he says, you may not believe that God exists. You may be uncertain whether God exists. But as you do these studies, just, be, just, just ask the Lord in your heart, Lord, if you do exist, show me yourself. Show me who you are. Help me to see you for who you are, if you really are there. 
Very simple prayer, gentle prayer, just indicating to someone in whom the Spirit may be at work. They begin to pray, essentially what these prayer, the prayer that these men prayed, Lord, open my eyes that I might see. We read earlier where Elisha was concerned for his servant, who could see, but in many ways was blind. Open his eyes, Lord, let him see. And he began to see spiritual realities, the presence of God with his people, with Elisha, to protect them. Well, in John 9, uh, Jesus speaks of those who claim to be able to see and yet are blind. But if we would simply acknowledge we are blind and ask Jesus to open our eyes, then we would see what it is of which the Bible speaks, of who Jesus is and our need for him so that we can believe in him and be saved. But this is also a prayer for Christians, not just the non-Christian, but prayer for Christians as well. We constantly need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes to see my sin, to see those things in me that you see, Lord, that displease you, that I might miss. Open my eyes to my sin. But at the same time, open my eyes more and more to Jesus, to who Jesus is, to who he is for me, to what he has done for me. We don't want to ask God to to just give us a greater sense of our own sin without a greater vision of Christ. That would just lead to despair. That would crush us. Remember Isaiah, exposed to the holiness of God, says, I am undone. Woe is me. Well, we want to see our sin. But we also want, as we gain a greater view of our sin, to gain a greater view of Jesus, the Savior, whose blood is sufficient to atone for any sin, whose righteousness is sufficient to clothe us adequately, perfectly, so that we can be with God in heaven. This needs to be the prayer on our lips. Lord, let our eyes be opened. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that. Open our eyes as we study this passage. Open our eyes, Lord, to see ourselves more as you see us. But also, Father, open our eyes to see Jesus for who he is, for as as we find him here in Scripture, the Savior, the compassionate, loving Messiah, the one who came not to be served, but to serve, the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might be among that many for whom he died, and that we might grow to be more like him who died. We pray in his name. Amen.